Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, you guys. Welcome to today's episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dwyer. Today on the show, I'm sharing my conversation with author Elisabeth Vanderweel. And we talk about one of my absolute favorite topics, fear. Elizabeth brings a very unusual perspective to the typical conversations around fear and change and resistance that we usually have. With her background in research, she brings a knowledge and experience to people who want to change how fear operates in their lives. And this is a big part of the conversation that you're going to hear today. So before we dive in, here's a little bit more about Elizabeth. Elizabeth Vanderweel received her doctorate in leadership studies from Gonzaga University in 2007 and is currently principal consultant for Hand in the Dark Consulting. Her core commitment to opening ways for people to be wonderful called her to explore the emotional terrain of human group interaction in which the members don't necessarily choose with whom they're interacting, i.e., right, the classroom, the workplace, and other organizations. She has researched, taught, and presented on diversity issues, transformational adult learning, organizational development, leadership, engaging with fear, and radical acceptance, both in the U.S. and Canada. Her consulting work has focused on the cycles of learning and change, particularly on how to measure both for success. Her book, Apocalyptic Best Practices, A Unique Approach to Fear and Change, was published in 2020. And in our conversation, we talk about the six different responses to fear and how they impact us, the different types of or flavors of fear, where does fear come from, the power of an intentional relationship with fear, and so much more. You guys can follow Elizabeth on her website, elizabethvanderweel.com, and that's E-L-I-S-E-B-E-T-H-V-A-N-D-E-R-W-E-I-L. And her website is where you can find out more about her book and all the other book-related things that she's doing, and she has a blog on there as well. You can also follow her on LinkedIn and find out more about her consulting business. And she's also on Twitter at dr.elisabeth, E-L-I-S-E-B-E-T-H. All right, you guys, this is a really cool conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. Here we go. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Hi, Megan. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to have you. And um, I love the work that you do and researching and working with fear. And that is really the the impetus for me starting this podcast in the first place. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Perfect. So I want to start by having you tell the audience more about yourself and your mission in the world. Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Vanderweel. I have a doctorate in leadership from Gonzaga University. I work as a consultant. Uh, the, the tagline is program evaluation and learning design, but what I bring and what I bring to that is 
a understanding and ability to hold the emotions, particularly fear that come along with those processes of both um, evaluating what you've been doing or what you want to do, as well as learning. Uh, fear is very much a part of both of those. Uh, my book, Apocalyptic Best Practices, emerged from my uh, dissertation research on fear and transformational learning. It's, uh, I wanted to bring this work out into the world in a way that is way more accessible than what I needed to do for a dissertation. And it is, a lot of it is really new for people. And since we're talking about fear, it's challenging right up front. So I wanted to make a book that was, you know, like sitting down with a friend and talking about this over coffee. Uh, and I even worked with a, an amazing illustrator, Margaret Schulte, um, who created these adorable illustrations throughout to help convey some of these concepts without words, which I think helps a lot of people engage with understanding these things in a different way. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a visual learner, so pictures are of any kind are really helpful. And I think for a lot of people out there as well. And also, I mean, it's fear is just such a vulnerable topic, right? It's something that is so personal and everybody experiences it very differently about different things. And it's a, it's a challenging topic to, I think, talk about and to put out into the world um, when everybody can relate to it, but yet relate to it in very different ways, right? Exactly. So I'd love to dive into the book a little bit. Your tagline, you know, it's, it's apocalyptic best practices, a unique approach to fear and change. And I like that a lot. I think it's it's something that it's bringing a topic that is very taboo for the most part out into the mainstream. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about what inspired you to write the book. And you just mentioned it was it came from a dissertation, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about about how what made you decide to put that out into the world in the way that you did it, and then also the impact that you hope to make in the world by putting it out there. Thanks. Um, yeah, what I really wanted to do was bring power back to people that has been taken from us. So I have been watching um, fear being weaponized by um, political powers of all stripes, as well as businesses putting fear of various things into us so we will buy things so that we will spend our precious uh, resources, our, our life and our money on things <laughs> to, yeah, to relieve the fear that they have created. And uh, what I learned through my research and particularly since my research, some more um, studies have been done, particularly a book that came out a couple of years ago called How Emotions Are Made um, by Dr. Lisa Feldman Klein or Klein Feldman that really gets deep into that biologically, neurologically, we basically have four feeling states 
And all of our emotions are created from that. Like literally we create our emotions. And this isn't something that we necessarily even do consciously. And it's something that we create in our minds while we're babies. Like this, this is forming before we even realize it happening. And it's a good thing. We need all these emotions to navigate our world. And fear is one of the first ones because it helps us stay alive. And people who are fearless tend not to live very long. And um, too often fear is portrayed as an on off switch. You either have fear or you don't. And that is not accurate. And um, behaving in a way that extends from treating fear like an on off switch really debilitates us and robs us of a lot of experiences and understanding our values in a way that we can pursue them and we can be disconnected from these manipulations that, because ultimately, and what I've discovered is fear at its most functional is an alert system. All fear is doing is saying, pay attention, this is important. And when we are overwhelmed with fear messages over and over again, uh, it's like mashing on an alarm button. Like pretty soon you don't hear it anymore. And then you can't pay attention to what is actually important. And so I'm hoping that through this book, I, I include exercises because it's apocalyptic best practices. So I wanna include some practices that people can use to get the get the hand off of mashing on that button so that you can start listening to your fear in all of its I call it flavors all of the flavors of fear and be able to tell what you need for you for your values for what you want to accomplish what you need to pay attention to and what you don't and then you know there's also the the different ways that you can respond to fear again with this binary sort of approach, it's not fight or flight. We actually have at least six responses to fear that science has shown us. The fight or flight thing actually came from an experiment done on male rats. Mm. And um, as is unfortunately typical with um, solid research, while the scientists reported, yes, this was what we found with male rats, the media, and this is like media back in the 50s, so even before Facebook and Twitter, just ran with it and said, you know, fight or flight or how we respond to fear. And it's like, this is, we're talking about rats. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and in the 80s, some other scientists uh, reapproached this same sort of experiment using humans and including women and found two more responses to fear. And since then, um, other studies have found yet two more. So in, in my research, and mine is not complete by any stretch of the imagination, I know of at least six responses to fear that most people aren't aware of, but we still do. We do all of them. So what are those? Let's talk about them. Okay, so the classic fight or flight. Yep. Um, the freeze is starting to get some attention. So freeze is another response to fear. And related to that is fake, 
So um, faking shows up as making yourself look really tough in a scary situation when you know you're you're not actually what you appear to be. And then the two, I think the most powerful ones are, I call them care and connect. In the research, they called it tend and befriend, but I like alliteration. So caring looks like in a frightening situation, and we'll use physical fright as, a, as an easy example. So if someone is threatening you or a group of people, you can respond by taking care of other people who are also scared. So that channels your fear into caring for other people or sometimes caring for your environment or caring for people that are not physically present but can be impacted by the consequences of this situation. And then the other one, connect, is like someone is threatening you you actually start a conversation with them and you connect with what is scaring you, like what is going on right now and getting really curious and staying engaged with it. So the, the fight and flight both function to separate you from what is scaring you. And then the fake and freeze, they both function to buy you time. So sometimes what's scary could just go away. Other times, you know, you might be able to create a window where you can make some choices rather than just react. And then the care and connect both keep you engaged with the, the frightening situation. And those can be extraordinarily transformative for changing your relationship with not only what you are afraid of. So like for the audience of this podcast, um, money, so if, you, if your response to fear is only fight or flight and you're in a financial situation that you have to deal with, fight and flight do not work. You can't and avoid it. No, you, you can't run for money. Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere. And yeah. you can't really fight it. That, that doesn't work either. So separating yourself doesn't work. So um, faking and freezing... Awesome. I was going to say also, yeah, go ahead. Faking and freezing. That also isn't yeah. going to move it all forward either. It, it can help. So if you are facing financial concerns, like not enough money or, um, you know, you find your accounts are doing something strange, freezing for a moment to like assess the situation can be helpful. Um, faking probably is not a good idea, but people do it faking, you know, that they can manage this situation when they can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the Karen connect in actually engaging and starting to understand money, how it works that, you know, money at, at this point in our civilization is really about agreements and relationships more than a pile of gold in a vault. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, again, that is the whole point I'm trying to do with this podcast is make it, make money, essentially normalize it, make it a conversation that we can have, make everybody, you know, just, just start to have people feel more comfortable with it by also being more vulnerable and admitting, Hey, we, we make mistakes too. So there's no reason. Mm -hmm. and, and not that, 
not that I'm diminishing that there's no, re- that the fear, I don't want to diminish that. I want to, I want to run head first towards it. And mm-hmm. that's where the care and the connection aspect of it, I think really comes in. And to your point, I mean, that's the opposite of, uh, of working with male rats here. <laughs> this, is, this is really trying to, to approach it from a, from a, a softer yet more caring, supportive way. And I think that's the true way we can heal and make progress mm-hmm. for women in general. Yeah. Mats, rat, male rats do not have to navigate a Roth IRA. <laughs> it's, it's also a different, it's a, it's a softer approach that is more effective. And mm-hmm. you, know, you say fight or flight is, is how they tested the, the male rats. I mean, yeah, of course, that's a very, very innate to very, I mean, the, when you fight or flight is like the animal instincts that we have, but especially as women, I think we tend to feel more and have a, and have a softer approach with the way that we, we perceive the world. That's not going to work either. Like, you know, that, that doesn't fight and flight just doesn't, doesn't seem to fit with how I process my fears and my emotions. So mm-hmm. I think that the care and connect is a, is a much different approach that I think is brand new. It's a brand new concept to a lot of people because all we ever hear is this research on flight or fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I don't know why this research, I mean, like I said, it was done in the eighties. So we've had like 40 years of this research being out there and yeah. it's not being picked up. And I think it is because it, if, if we imbibe this understanding that we can care and connect with what scares us, we may not be as uh, malleable to manipulation through fear. That, that's a theory in my brain. I have no research to back that up, but it's, it's something that I am noticing that when, for me, when I am, am facing money issues and I know that in 2021, so many people are facing money issues that they have never had before. Um, when I actually engage with what is happening and not try to like bury my head in the sand and wait for everything to go back to normal, which it's not gonna happen. Um, I am not as reactive when I'm reading the news or I'm seeing an ad I, um, I'm not like participating in massive retail therapy. Yes. Not that that doesn't feel good and isn't helpful from time to it's time, a, but it's a temporary, uh, it's a temporary solution. It's not going to solve the problem in the long term. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what's also interesting, um, and what I kind of get at in the book, but I, I really focus on a lot of just like working through this, like really basic concept that we have six responses rather than just two is also the aspect of time. So with fake and freeze, it buys you time. And the interesting thing about fear and time is fear only exists in the future. Yeah. Like if, if you are afraid of something and that happens and it, and it is happening in this moment, you are no longer afraid. You're just, you're just doing or not doing. This is just what is happening now. Mm-hmm. And so as 
um, one, of, one of the fear researchers, and he particularly focuses on physical safety, um, Daniel, uh, oh shoot, what is his name? Just went out of my head. Um, in the gift of fear, he talks about um, if you're afraid of something that is proof positive it hasn't happened. Even if you're afraid of something in the past happening again, so it has happened in the past, you're afraid that it will happen again, it's still proof that it hasn't happened. The fear cannot exist in the future. I mean, it cannot exist in the present, sorry. Right. It right. only exists in the future. Yeah, and I think that's, it's, I mean, that's the truth, right? We all say that we're afraid of the unknown. We're just, but we're really sitting here in the present. We know what's going on in the present, mm-hmm. but we can't control what's going to happen in the future. And I think really it's not so much that we're afraid of the future. We're just afraid of what we can't control or yeah. that makes us uncomfortable. The, what we can't control makes us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think there's different types of people that have varying degrees of comfort with what they can control and what they can't. And I'm somebody that likes to control things. So for me, it's like that, that is where a lot of that anxiety stems from. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't like having control. We, that, that's something we all enjoy having and it's fleeting, right? The, you know, the world turning upside down and sideways is something that is beyond all of our controls. Like, you know, I, I think about, this is a random example, but I, I live here in Seattle and we are very aware of a couple of massive impacts on our region. One is Amazon and two is uh, volcanoes and earthquakes. So Bezos who just increased his millions by more billions mm-hmm. cannot do anything to stop a nine point earthquake that right. will take out Seattle. Right. And what we can do in the, in the infamous words of Edna Mode is luck favors the prepared. We can, you know, look at what is potential and what we can do now to ameliorate potential negativity and assess our acceptable level of risk because being alive is risky. And for each person, we need to understand for ourselves what our acceptable level of risk is. And that is the real power of like renegotiating our relationship with fear because fear tells you what's important to you. And if you, if you haven't taken the time to reflect and sit with yourself in fear, you don't know what's important to you. And so you're, you're constantly reactive to others' influence. Hmm. Yeah. Now that's so fascinating, but you're absolutely right. I'd love to ask you, and one of the things that you talk about throughout the book also is these different types of fears. And I think we touched on it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that would be really helpful to clarify or to help as we're going through the day when things come up, how to like, how to identify that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, again, this is going to be a fairly novel way of thinking about fear for a lot of people. 
Um, again, you know, beyond the on-off switch, people are also um, used to knowing fear as a matter of degrees, like you're a little bit afraid or you're really yeah. afraid, you're terrified. Yeah. But there's also, again, what I call the flavors of fear. So similar to like physical flavors, you know, we have basically sweet, salty, and savory are what yeah. things taste like. But even among sweet things, a lollipop doesn't taste the same as a chocolate cake. Right. So with fear, um, being afraid of public speaking and being afraid of a massive earthquake are not the same fear. They're different flavors. And one can be very intense, one can be in the background and they can switch back and forth. But understanding and um, spending time with these different fears, again, helps you be able to navigate what is important and where you need to spend your energy and your resources. So I could really feel like, you know, preparing for an earthquake is a big deal. So I will spend my money buying um, packets of water and foodstuffs and things that can help when the electricity and transportation and water and all of our infrastructure is not available. What can get me through a few weeks um, and making plans with my family, what do we do? Or, you know, that may just make me more stressed out, more anxious. Um, I could spend my energy and, and resources moving out of an earthquake zone. <laughs> like that's, that's a choice too. And that is another way to spend your energy and resources about something that is frightening in a, in a different way and at a different level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's just the, the way that we, the, the more awareness that we have of the different types of fears, the easier it'll be to help move through those. Cause I, and I'm not saying that we should get over it or, it, or all of a sudden, like, you know, you flip a switch and you're not afraid of that anymore there's like varying degrees of that. Do you talk about that and how to move towards the fear and the benefits of moving towards the fear in, mm -hmm. in the book as well? I'd love to, to go down that route as well. Yeah, so it's through some of the exercises, it's, it's helpful to understand again, the six responses, we all do all of them in different situations. So um, if you are facing down a rabid dog, probably engaging with that dog is not a good idea. Right, right. <laughs> Get away from that dog. Um, freezing may be a little helpful, but it, it depends on what is coming up for you, how you are gonna respond. And through some of the exercises and with like some sort of visualization scenarios and things like that, coming to understand this um, emotion that we have been taught our whole lives to separate from, either by fleeing it or by destroying it through fight, is going to help us when a scary situation comes up, be able to respond in a way that is going to, one, keep us alive, and two, move us toward what we find valuable, what we, the places that we want to go for ourselves and those that we care about. 
So if you are, do you, what if you're in a situation where, you know, you're, somebody may have a fear about something now, you know, say, let's use the example of, you know, the dog, the, the dog, right? So, you know, you hear stories where I used to be afraid of dogs, but now I'm not anymore. So what was the process that that person had to go through in order to say, I'm not afraid of those, of, of a dog anymore? I guess, did they have to actively do something in order to go through that? Or did mm-hmm. they actually, was it subconscious? I guess is what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at. Like, what is the process yeah. that that person moves through in order to go from like, from one extreme to the other? Mm-hmm. So I can use my own daughter as an example of this. As a small child, she was terrified of dogs. Dogs mm-hmm. had never hurt her. And even small dogs that she knew, like her grandma's dog. She, like this one time, uh, little Sammy comes leaping out the door, excited to see her. And she just like literally climbs up my body to get away from the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it didn't matter that, you know, she was bigger than them. You know, when she got bigger, it, it, she's still terrified of them. Um, as she matured and she gained understanding and more experiences with dogs who didn't hurt her, she's no longer afraid of dogs. And we have a dog in the house now. Mm-hmm. And she loves this dog. So it's, it can be a lot of things. It can be someone, I don't know, and I don't know if she actively pursued trying not to be afraid of dogs, but she, through her life experiences, that is something that evolved for her. And to use a different example, my relationship with money, when I just understood, you know, just fight or flight with money, I would ignore it. I, and I constantly had trouble with it, or I never had enough. And I wanted to change that. I think it's ridiculous that we talk about sex in schools, but we never talk about money. Oh, it's the biggest pet peeve of, that I have that, they, that we don't talk about money in school. And yeah. or how so to basic management, like just basic understanding mm-hmm. of what's coming in and what's going out, basic budgeting. It just drives me insane. But Or even basic understanding of what money is, that it, yeah. again, it is not a pile of gold in a vault. No, I mean, we, we learn everything that we, that we know about money when we're finally, you know, on our own and have to manage it. It's all from our, how we grew up. It's all from our house. We're learning, mm-hmm. we're, we're actually taking on into the point of fear you know, we're taking on these mindsets around, you know, scarcity or whatever it may be, abundance or, you know, um, not having enough, whatever that your, that your mindset may be around it. We're, they may not have been ours to begin with. So we're, t- mm-hmm. we're actually like inheriting somebody else's fear. And yet that's the only, the only way we knew how to interact with it. So now mm-hmm. we're taking that on into our world. So it's so messed up in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, I talk about, um, when, when I chose to change this, I went after learning about money and one of the most powerful books I read, um, I think it was published in the late 80s, early 90s, um, called Your Money or Your Life. And just the very basic concept that money acts as batteries for life energy. So you spend your life energy to get this amount of money and then you take that and you, you give it away to get something else. And so it completely changed my relationship with how 
what I was willing to spend my life energy doing to get money and how much money, as well as how much money I was willing to spend to get a thing or an experience. And the simple exp- uh, example is movies and theaters. So we're getting to go to theaters again. And I considered like how much, how many hours of my life it took me to get the admission cost to get into the theater, mm-hmm. as well as the number of hours of my life I spend in the theater. And it got to the point where I'm, I'm not going to any old movie. I, I want to go to good movies that like, it's worth it. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what I talk about a lot on the show is this uh, idea of intention and not just spending money just for the sake of spending money or because we think it's going to, you know, fill some hole that we have, like, or, you know, an emptiness, I guess, that we have. And that's kind of the retail, the, the retail shopping or retail therapy aspect of it that I was, we were talking about before, but it's really, you know, putting your dollars towards something that like, you know, is going to make you feel good. And it takes a lot of time and energy, I think, to, to realize what that is. And so when you can spend in alignment with, with who you are and what feels good to you, there's nothing wrong with that. That is the Mm -hmm. ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. If those pretty shoes are going to lift you up literally and figuratively for weeks, months on end, by all means, if you, if you can, and it doesn't, you know, actively harm other aspects of your life, get the pretty shoes. They're amazing. Absolutely. If that, if it's worth it to you, then awesome. And, you know, and the other thing is kind of like weeding out the judgment and and doubt from Mm -hmm. everybody else around you, because everybody has different things that makes them tick, right? Everything, everybody has different, different habits and hobbies and things that, that make them happy. Right. So if it's something that is invaluable to you from that perspective, go for it, go for it. I I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. It just, it just, we have to stay like we've kind of as a culture gotten to this habit of spending for the sake of spending. And I think if we really slow down and realize what we want to do and what our preferences are and who we are, then, you know, it'll feel so much better when we spend in alignment with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the consequences of COVID-19 and people being in quarantine and the way that our world has been reshaped by that whole experience is that reflection has been forced on people. Like you, you know, when you're not going into the office every day, you're not spending money on lunch out, you know, two or three times a week or possibly five times a week. You're not spending money on gas and you're not spending your life in commuter lanes. And so then, you know, when those things become available again, you're like, hmm, is that really what I want to spend my life energy and my money doing? Exactly. Sometimes it's worth it to people. I, I from one, I love being around other people. I know that like Microsoft is now doing like a hybrid where people can choose to come in two to three days a week to the office, but the rest of the time they have to work from home. No one is allowed to come into the office five days a week anymore. Oh, interesting. Isn't that fascinating? And there, you know, there's a whole lot of ripple effect 
just from making that kind of move. And I think it's one, they're listening to their employees and two, they're listening to their bottom line. There's so much infrastructure that they don't have to pay for now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. it makes so much sense um, from a business perspective. Absolutely. So as we kind of start to wrap up, I have a couple more questions for you. And, and this one is you know, more around it, fear and like where it comes from in general. So do you think that like, we, cr- we create fear or is it like innate, like hardwired within us? I'm curious where you, what your thoughts are on that or what you've researched around that. So um, based on the research in how emotions are made, uh, the four feeling states that have been discovered as the basics for all emotions are comfortable, uncomfortable, and calm and excited. That's it. That is all we neurologically enter the world to fear, to, to feel. Fear is conditioned into us as infants. We do not come into the world with it. We do not come into the world with love. We don't come into the world with anything except pleasant, unpleasant, calm, and excited. Interesting. And everything from our culture, from our family, from our friends, from our pets, everything is constructs all of our emotions. And it's endlessly fascinating to me that we have research now that's showing, um, depending on what language you speak, like English, Italian, Afrikaans, whatever, that shapes your reality. So like you experience the world differently based on the language that you speak. And that language is part of your emotional coding as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that everything that we experience leads to fear or comfort level, I suppose. And it's, it's the conditioning that we've had within our culture that has, that creates it within us. And it's the, it's those beliefs, those stories that, you know, all the thoughts and stuff, but, but that stem from those ingrained beliefs, which we inherit or we, you know, absorb from the day we're born. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That can, that can create that for us. So it's fascinating when you think about it. And we're not, you know, the, the, we use the term hardwired, but we nothing about humans is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we neuroplasticity, our brains are changing and evolving our entire lives. And with an intentional relationship with fear, you can literally change your brain, change your mind about what is scaring you and how much and in what way and what you're going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because it gives so much hope that, you know, the things that we are, it, for me anyway, with my mission and putting out the podcast that, you know, I want to help people to not be afraid when it comes to anything money anymore. I want, I want women to truly step into their power and stop staying small, start being educated and start to, to really just empower themselves and everyone around us, right? And so it gives me hope that we can, as we start to practice a lot of this, 
stuff that we just talked about and questioning those beliefs and those thoughts, those underlying conditions, right. That we were, that we were taught that we will be able to make change like lasting change. Um, Mm -hmm. that's exciting. Yeah. And it's already happening. It's absolutely amazing. Um, some amazingly rich women around the world are, we don't hear about them very much, frankly. I mean, we hear about Oprah, but it, you know, she's, being, being in the public eye is, is part of what she does, yeah. but there are so many women who are very rich and are spending their resources to help us. Yeah, which is awesome and so good to hear and just continues to, to spread this like positive notion that change is happening. So mm-hmm. I love it. All right. I, I have one last question that I ask to all of my guests on the podcast. If you could leave the listeners with one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece of advice. I, I think my advice would be listen to what is scaring you. Really listen and listen to what's happening in your body and listen to the stories that are behind the fear, listen to them and see if they're still true. Because Mm -hmm. at some point it was true and that was helpful, but is it still true? And what, what do you want to do with that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love it. (laughs) That's so perfect. Thank you so much. All right. So please, um, if you could, this is your chance to shine. So please tell everybody how they can find you and follow the work that you're doing in the world. Oh, thank you, Megan. Um, People can find me. um, So my author website is elisabethvanderweel.com. And um, Elisabeth is E-L-I-S-E-B-E-T-H, Vanderweel, V-A-N-D-E-R-W-E-I-L.com can find out all about the book and any book related things that I'm doing there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to take a look at my consulting business. And I'm on Twitter at dr.elisabeth, dr.elise. And yeah, that's, those are the places that I'm most active. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Megan. This has been brilliant. I so appreciate you doing this. Thank you. 